Tēnā koutou katoa, kei te whakarongo mai koe ke Pacific Waves ko Koroe Hawkins toku ingoa. E hare ake nei? This one went on and intensified, so we, we had to rush out of the house, brought all our kids out onto the ground, but even on the ground it felt like waves. Casualties expected to climb in PNG as authorities assess the full extent of damage from a 7.6 quake. Also, these aren't tests. This is commercial-scale mining being disguised as testing. Greenpeace Aotearoa slams deep-sea mining go-ahead from UN-mandated International Seabed Authority and... The coronation of Queen Elizabeth was what did it in terms of cementing a very close relationship between our own Queen, Queen Salote and uh, Queen Elizabeth. As the Pacific continues to mourn Queen Elizabeth, we hear a first-person account of her visit to Tonga in 1953 and learn about the close connections between the two royal families. A magnitude 7.6 earthquake hit Papua New Guinea on Saturday, killing at least four people and causing damage to buildings and essential infrastructure. However, higher casualties are expected, with reports that remote and isolated areas in Papua New Guinea's highlands have also been hard hit. RNZ Pacific's Finau Fonua has more. The earthquake struck at about 9.45 a.m. local time at a depth of 61 kilometers in the eastern highlands of Papua New Guinea. It was a powerful quake felt all over the country and in neighboring Indonesia. RNZ Pacific's correspondent in Papua New Guinea, Scott Waide, described the moment he felt the quake on Saturday morning. He was at his home with his family in Leh, the country's second largest city. Usually we have earthquakes, but uh, they usually last, you know, 30 seconds, 40 seconds a minute, uh, maybe. But this one went on and intensified, so we we had to rush out of the house, uh, brought all our kids out onto the ground. But even on the ground, it felt like uh, waves going uh, through it, through the earth. Uh, So we, we had to move away from the power poles just in case the poles came down. Um, so, yeah, it was quite unnerving watching all of it happen in front of us. Uh, the house was shaking quite violently. Located on the Pacific's ring of fire, Papua New Guineans are accustomed to earthquakes. But Port Moresby resident, Gorothy Kenneth, a senior journalist at the local South Pacific Post, said there was panic in the capital. She was also at home, getting ready for her Saturday shift when the quake struck. I was getting ready to drive to the office for work. My children were watching television, and I was having coffee, and then the earthquake. Everybody started running outside, because I live in a compound where there's 10 units, and everyone started screaming and going out. I just stood there, and I was thinking, oh my goodness, something's going to happen. And I, I saw the kids put the TV off and then they ran outside. Despite the earthquake taking place more than 24 hours ago, limited communications in the isolated highlands of Papua New Guinea means the full extent of the damage and casualties remains unknown. But the latest update holds the number of deaths at at least four. Prime Minister James Morapi is optimistic the damage of the earthquake will be less than the 7.5 magnitude earthquake that struck Papua New Guinea in 2018, causing over 160 deaths. 
Marape said at a presser shortly following the earthquake that he had been advised by experts that the earthquake was the result of a slip of plates rather than a more severe movement of tectonic crusts. I was advised there's a clear difference between this uh, this earthquake and the earthquake also that happened in uh, in, in between Hela and Western Province. Uh, this one was a slip. And the other one was a tectonic crust movement. Uh, tectonic crust movement uh, is two 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 plates moving, once moving up, once being coming up, and once submerged. So uh, this one is just a slip; they slip against each other. Uh, we've been advised that again the impact of a slip is much lesser. Cracked concrete, fallen houses, and damaged roads have been reported in most cities. Photos and videos of liquefaction are also circulating on social media. Although urban areas appear to have escaped any severe destruction, and initial reports of casualties are low, Wyde says there's great concern for rural areas near the epicenter of the quake. What many people are concerned about is the reports coming from rural areas because there were reports of landslides. Getting the information out is difficult because uh, a lot of the places don't have network coverage. It's the epicenter is in the mountains, so it's uh, quite inaccessible uh, by road. Uh, so it'll take some time before people have access to gain access to network coverage areas, and then they'll be able to send pictures. This is a developing story. Radio New Zealand Pacific will keep you updated with the latest news and reports. And yes, for the latest on this story, just head on over to our website at rnzi.com. Greenpeace Aotearoa is condemning the International Seabed Authority's decision to give a seabed mining company permission to start mining the ocean floor in the clarion Clipperton zone between Hawaii and Mexico. The metals company subsidiary, Nauru Oceans Resources Incorporated, or NORI, is to begin what it calls planned pilot collection system trials later this month. But Greenpeace Aotearoa seabed mining campaigner James Hita says what the company is trying to disguise as scientific research and testing involves actually mining the seabed, which will cause irreparable damage to ocean ecosystems. He joins me now. Kira James, and welcome back on Pacific Waves. Now, given all of the reporting on this so far has indicated next year as the earliest we could expect this kind of activity to begin, would it be fair to say that this has come as somewhat of a shock? Absolutely. When I first read the article, I almost thought I was dreaming because I opened it and read it and I thought, oh, that sounds like they're beginning to mine. And then I read it again and I had to take it over to... Um, the rest of my team to say, this is their mining, isn't it? They're beginning, aren't they? Uh, and yeah, it really is. It's just a total shock to all of us who work in the deep sea mining space and are trying to counter this industry. And and when I saw it initially, I thought maybe prospecting, but, but can you explain just the technicalities and the differences as to why this is actually mining? Yeah, well, you know, prospecting would be going out and uh, seeing what's around and seeing if there's potential for mining, maybe doing an impact assessment. But what they're doing is they're sending out a research vessel to get baseline data. They're sending out a mining vessel to mine until the end of the year and then doing more tests after that. 
So they are actually beginning to mine and 3,600 tonnes of mined material is not small. Now, looking at the actual, the document that, that announced this, what, what, is, what is the, I guess, what's the explanation or what's the reasoning given for it? Well, there are, there are two things in there. One, they uh, say that these are tests. These aren't tests. This is commercial scale mining being disguised as testing. This is them saying we're doing science, but really they are mining the deep sea without the regulations that we need to have in place before that can go ahead. Uh, and then secondly, they've switched from saying that these are sustainable and no impact metals to actually saying they're lower impact metals. These aren't lower impact metals even, they are going to destroy the deep ocean, they're going to ruin any progress that we could potentially make in the next few years to fix the climate crisis and biodiversity crisis. And really they're destroying one of the last untouched places on the entire planet. We cannot allow them to do this. And what actions are available, I guess, to to Greenpeace and others like-minded organizations to um, prevent this? Well, I can say safely, Kuroi, that Greenpeace, Aotearoa, myself, the allies that we work with, we're simply not going to let this happen. There is no way that we will sit by quietly and let them do this right under our noses, using opportunities where media is taken up in other spaces to uh, actually just slip right under our noses and begin mining. So we will throw our full weight at this to make sure that they don't even get the opportunity to go ahead with this. But on an individual level, it's really important that any person watching this, uh, reading about it, anyone following this story should be outraged, should be absolutely outraged because this is a massive international issue that people all across the world any individual who cares about the ocean should give energy and attention to. What's, what's the timeline given, given here, just going back to that a bit in terms of where this, when this activity is supposed to take place? Well, if you think about it, the, um, the press release from the metals company, the baddies in this situation, it was put out last week, halfway-ish through September. And that press release said, we will start mining by the end of September and follow that through till the end of the year. That is no time whatsoever. There's no transparency. There's no opportunity for civil society to have their say. There's no opportunity to hold these companies and corporations to account. And the International Seabed Authority, which is the United Nations, is playing a huge part here in enabling mining to go ahead. And they're allowing this to happen. And what do we know about the area that this license or this this uh, has been granted for? Yeah, the area is called Nori D, uh, Nauru Ocean Resources Incorporated, and, and the fourth, I guess, uh, area that they have license over. Uh, but it's in a, a precious part of the ocean, about halfway between the coasts of Hawaii and Mexico. And it's an area that's just been absolutely untouched. But we know that if we start digging at this really precious environment, one, it will take a millennia to recover, but the science says that it will severely impact the ocean's ability to sequester carbon and help us in the climate crisis. At the moment, it gives us every second breath that we take, one from the forest, uh, our ngahere, and one from the ocean, the moana, and this will severely put that at risk. We simply cannot run that risk right now. 
Around the Pacific, news of the Queen's death continues to be felt this week. In Vanuatu, a wreath-laying ceremony was held on Mystery Island to mark the death of Queen Elizabeth II. The Vanuatu Daily Post reports community members of Anaichum laid a wreath on a monument stone which was erected on a site close to where the late Queen had a swim during a brief visit to the island in 1974 aboard the Royal Yacht Britannia. The locals also threw flowers on the spot where she swam. In New Zealand, a public holiday has been set for Monday the 26th of September to mark the Queen's death. The Prime Minister says it will be an opportunity for people to pause and reflect. Unlike holidays such as Easter, there won't be any restrictions on trading. Jacinda Ardern says it's a one-in-70-year event and should be acknowledged. The Queen was our sovereign, our head of state, uh, made an enormous contribution to uh, New Zealand uh, through her public service. Uh, and uh, this marks a significant end to a chapter. This gives also New Zealanders uh, a chance to attend, should they choose, the memorial services across the country on that same day. And in Tonga, RNZ Pacific's correspondent, Kalafi Moala, says he remembers distinctly Queen Elizabeth's visit to Tonga in 1953 with her husband, Philip Duke of Edinburgh, a year after her coronation. He spoke with RNZ Pacific reporter Jan Kohut about the visit and reflected on the close relationship between the royal families of Tonga and the United Kingdom. I think the, the big thing I can remember was the fact that there were just people everywhere in town. And uh, my mother had taken me uh, to, to be beside the roads because they were just, it's almost like every kid in Tonga was uh, lining up beside the road, you know, the, the kind of thing, respect and, and all that to the Queen. But uh, uh, when when the the vehicle that uh, you know came on the road, I mean the kids were just uh, uh, singing, cheering, and all that. Yeah, I mean that, that's what I can remember <laughs> quite distinctly. Uh, of course, this was a time when uh, it, it's not like there will be a television coverage where you can watch or, or even radio. Right? I mean, there was nothing. Uh, there was no real media in Tonga at the time, other than a monthly newspaper. So, uh, <clears throat> but yeah, I, I can remember this distinctly. At, at four, there was my first year at uh, at school, actually in a grade school, and uh, we were we were uh, we all went in uh, to be beside the road. You know, every for 25 kilometer road. It was all packed from the airport to Nukualofa uh, with uh, school children. Uh, I just happened to be part of the school kids that uh, was lining up in Nukualofa uh, itself. But uh, yeah, I uh, <laughs> I can remember that very distinctly. <laughs> and how many people do you think there were in total? Rough estimate. Well, I mean, looking in 1953. Uh, it probably in, in the whole island of Tongatapu, there would have been, uh, you know, 35, 40,000 people on the island. Uh, we had people from all over Tonga that came together. We have a population now in Tonga of uh, about 108,000. There's 142,000 Tongans outside of Tonga. Uh, so... Uh, Probably at that time, you, uh, I mean, the, the total Tongan population wouldn't have been uh, 100,000. So most probably 
there, there could have been 30 to 35,000 people that came to uh, to the to the town, especially the town area of the Golapa. Mm. And uh, of course, there was a, a lot of people. Uh, Pacific, she visited at the same time, well, it was Tonga and Fiji. Uh, I think she came to Tonga and then uh, and then the, went from here to Fiji. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, when you were saying that um, there were good friends and the monarchy still has really good a good relationship with um, the 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 royal family and uh, the monarchy in, in Tonga, where did that come from? How how did they form that bond, the Queen and and Queen Salote? Well, it definitely started at the time of. Uh of the early missionaries. The first missionaries that came to Tonga came from uh, Great Britain. Uh, and of course, uh, these missionaries were inspired by the uh, explorer, Captain Cook, uh, who visited Tonga. And uh, the last time Captain Cook visited Tonga was in 1776. And the first missionary group that landed in Tonga from uh, Great Britain was in 1797. Uh, so uh, you, you can see the correlation uh, of those things. And of course, when they came in, they were not just missionaries, but they uh, talked a lot about the kind of civilization that existed in, uh, in Great Britain and the fact that Tonga was a kingdom and that Great Britain uh, had, a, had a monarch. Uh, there was the immediate establishment of a link. And in that article, if you notice, uh, it's something very uh, in our history that we... Still, we, we talked about of how uh, you know our founder of, of uh, modern Tonga, uh, the first uh, king on, on the particular dynasty that's ruling in Tonga today, uh, Taufa Ahau. He, when he was baptized, he, he picked the name George of the Aoki in Tongan, uh, which was taken off because of the of King uh, George the Fifth, I think it was. So. Um, she picked the name, and uh, from to, to this day, she's still he is known as King George to Bow the First. So there, there, there is that, that kind of uh, close relationship all the way from the time, and then of course the coronation of Queen Elizabeth was what did it in terms of uh, cementing a very close relationship between our own Queen, Queen Salote, uh, and uh, Queen Elizabeth. Queen Salote visited. Uh, uh, the coronation, and then the next year, in 1953, uh, uh, Queen Elizabeth came to Tonga. And it's strange to see because uh, um, Tonga has this connection and still a, a thriving monarchy, whereas Fiji is completely different. Um, uh, that's correct, yes. It's quite interesting. And the same, of course, uh, not only for, for Fiji, but Samoa. I think you go back, Samoa was, uh, uh, was in itself a kingdom. Uh, they had the uh, king of, not, not just the king of Fiji, but the king of Samoa. And, and Tahiti had a, a king, yeah, a monarch at the time. So was Hawaii. Mm. You had Pomare from Tahiti and Kamehameha from uh, from Hawaii. Uh, but uh, Tonga became the surviving kingdom uh, when it, it came to the era of Queen uh, Elizabeth. Yeah. Well, could you, could you say it's because of its um, high level of maybe Christian believers that still cling on to um, the monarchy system, would you say that? Or Well, definitely it had not only to do with the, the, the mission, the Christian mission, but I think more 
had to do with the fact that uh, the Tonga's independence was preserved, uh, whereby, uh, like, Tahiti became a French colony. Mm. And, and, and then uh, there's, there's, like, a takeover of the monarchy system by, by French rule. Uh, Hawaii, of course, the, the uh, Americans basically annexed Hawaii to become an American uh, territory. Uh, and then uh, Samoa and both Samoa and Fiji had their own internal uh, issues. Uh, Fiji, I think, you know, definitely, uh, Fiji became a, a British colony. Uh, but, but Tonga was saved from that. Uh, I think Tonga, in, in a sense, because of the early missionaries, they were able to uh, uh, draft a constitution for Tonga and kept Tonga as an independent nation under the rule of the monarch. And, and so na- no nation was able to take over Tonga. Later on, it became a, a protectorate of Great Britain and, and had a, a, a treaty relationship. But we were never annexed or became a colony of a nation. So I, I think that's the real reason why uh, our monarchies were survived in Tonga. Uh, another factor, of course, that you've got to remember is that all the the royal children in Tonga, uh, but there was Queen Salote's immediate uh, children, and then her great-grandchildren, and, and so on. They were all educated in Great Britain. It was like they all went to the same school where uh, the British elite and some of the royal family went to. You know, there was this mingling and mixing uh, together. And... Uh, we have had over the years uh, continuous visits from uh, Thomas royal family and uh, to talk to Great Britain and, and likewise, yeah, you know, uh, people from the British royal family visiting us here in Tonga. So, so this, it's a connection between the two royal families. Nga mihi motowa. That brings us to the end of Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us free to your device from Spotify, iHeart, Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Ka kite anong.